0: Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Maslick, where we explore the intersection of our minds, our money, and what matters most. Today, it's our first episode on our Financial Anthem series, where once a month we'll be having a conversation with a guest on their unique money story. And then by the end of the episode, Root Hub will have turned that story into a song. Today, Our guest is Mark McGrath. Mark has over a decade of experience in the financial planning industry, where he serves as a wealth advisor. In this deeply heartfelt episode, Mark invites us to join him on his personal journey as he reflects on his father's experience navigating his money story. With a genuine sense of empathy and admiration, Mark shares his unique perspective on how his father navigated his own money story. Through Mark's vulnerability, we gain a deeper understanding of the profound impact money can have on our lives and identities. We explore the intricate connections between our financial well being and the ways in which we define ourselves. In a world where money can be a tremendous asset and, at times, a double edged sword, Mark's story sheds light. On the challenges that arise when our identities become entangled with our financial circumstances. Whether you're navigating the complexities of retirement, having a financial transition, or just looking at a more compassionate approach to preserving your identity amongst financial change, this episode is sure to provide a lot of value. Mark, I really appreciate you sharing your story, as I know your story will help other people as they navigate their own stories. Before we get into this episode, if you're interested in joining our Project 100 Financial Anthems, please go to www.financialanthems.com and from there you can see details of this wonderful program. And lastly, if you have been enjoying these episodes on the Most Hated F Word podcast, it would be great if you could support the show by heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a an review. And now, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Mark McGrath catch
1: The wave to take me where i needed to be The of having not enough Fear of wanting way too much And notion of abundance stop me out of dancing the chorus
0: Mark welcome to the show
2: Thanks Sean pleasure to be here
0: It's a pleasure to have you Before we start recording i was sharing with you This project RootHub and I are working on is creating some financial anthems for individuals. We've done them on an ad hoc basis throughout the last few years on the podcast. And I'm excited to see what song we can co-create together today. And when I heard you share your story on Twitter, it really resonated with me. The reason why is I'm a CFP as well. And I think at times, many times for myself, I know that I can get Bogged down in the technical part of financial planning and forget that there's a whole human element to financial planning. Mm -hmm. And life has a way of letting us know or sending us these messages. And I think the response you received on Twitter is an indication that to some level, we know that these often unconscious messages are there, but we kind of need these people like yourselves to tell these stories and then. We all hear our own story in your story. Mm -hmm. I thought we would start with just the idea that despite most of our life decisions orientate from this money story that we're all living in, most of us to some level are unconscious that we actually have a relationship with money. We actually are Mm -hmm. living a money story and I can assume. You learned many valuable lessons throughout your studies as a CFP, throughout your professional work and all the different courses that you would have taken. Some very important lessons about money. On March 14th, 2023, I'm in Mountain Time. It showed 10.03 a.m. You shared a story about your father that perhaps may have been one of the more significant lessons you learned about money and life. You decided to join us on the podcast today to discuss these lessons, share whatever parts you feel comfortable with the story. All well, Root Hub is going to craft together your own personal financial anthem that will hopefully reflect back the key messages and the essence of your experience with money. So Mark, let's turn it over to you. Feel free to start your story because it's your story, wherever you feel is most appropriate.
2: Sure. Yeah. It's a- open canvas. I'm glad we've got time. right? I'm you know, 39, so it's a pretty long story if we've got time to, to tell it all. But I think it goes back to when I was a, a kid, like I'm sure it does for many of us. And I guess in, in writing more over the past year, I've realized some things about my money story that I hadn't really maybe connected dots on previously. So my dad was an entrepreneur. He ran a small tile store, but he was always very involved with his money. He was very private about it, but money was very important to him in terms of its ability to you know, shape the outcome of your life, if not used effectively. And from a very young age, he would talk about money, not about his own financial situation, but money was a relatively frequent topic as a kid. And I think my earliest memory of this was when I was in grade seven. So I would have been, I guess, 12 years old. My dad had taught me to read stock quotes in the newspaper, and he always encouraged me to read the business section of the newspaper. And I didn't understand anything. You know, it was all economics and business news. And he's, yeah, but you got to start somewhere and I can, you know, help you understand these articles. And I didn't do very well with that, but he did teach me to read stock quotes in the newspaper. And from memory, they were still quoted in fractions back then. I have a distinct memory of looking at share prices in the daily paper. I was 12, so I was born in 84. So this was 96. So this is kind of predates, you know, livestock quotes on the internet. And you get the paper every morning and you check the previous day's prices, and the they were quoted in fractions of 36 and a quarter, 36 and a half, or whatever it was. So he taught me to read that. And then in, in that grade seven year, as a class experiment, we had a stock picking competition. Right. So every kid in the class, it was like a solo competition, no partnering up or anything. Everybody got to pick a stock, and I think it was a month long. You had to pick a stock. You had to stick with it, right? It wasn't a fancy competition. You couldn't trade or anything. It was pick a stock, stick with it. The teacher was just trying to teach us a little bit about the markets. And so all the other kids were choosing Coca-Cola and Disney and these companies that they were familiar with that were fun, you know. And my dad and I went to the newspaper and looked at the previous, you know, few months trend. And he was obviously, you know, more in tune what was, with what was going on in the market. And we picked some junior mining stock that was just on a tear. And we blew out the competition. Like we were up like 400% that month or something like that. And so we won, but the teacher disqualified me because we won just by such a ridiculous margin. And they just knew that my dad was obviously like, I had some influence. Who's was this 12 year old picking some junior mining company out of the newspaper. Right. But it was an interesting lesson because it was, you know, I won, but I still lost and they gave it to the next kid. So I think for me, a lot of the the money lessons kind of start with that, you know, around, around that age. And then from then on, I kind of just started noticing more about money and My dad was very frugal. He bought all his clothes at Costco and we used to make fun of him relentlessly for this, but it was Kirkland Signature Jeans and everything. But he was always talking about the value that he was getting out of these purchases. And we just thought he was so uncool, right? You know, these (laughs) Kirkland Signature Jeans. And now, of course, I get it. But back then, I I certainly didn't. I used to joke with him that he would buy two-ply toilet paper and split it for the savings. He didn't do that, but I would kind of riff on him a little bit for that. Yeah, money was talked about a lot. I didn't always take his advice. I distinctly remember making a ridiculous money mistake. And I bought a car for $5,000 when I was, I don't know, 17. And to afford it, I had to take a loan from the bank. It was $5,000. It was a Chevy Blazer. And I had no business buying a car at that age. I had virtually no income. I was working part-time in a grocery store, making minimum wage. And he just kept telling me what a silly decision this was. <laughs> like you're starting off your adulthood money journey by getting into debt to buy a depreciating asset that you don't need. Like, you're not going to maintain it. The cost of the car is only part of the cost of ownership. This is going to put you in the hole. And I was like, yeah, but my friends have cars and they want a car and I want my freedom and everything. So I bought the car. And it was a terrible decision in hindsight. Not only was I saddled with $5,000 in debt at a relatively young age, but I didn't maintain the car. I know nothing about cars to this day. I didn't get an oil change for two years and I ended up having to sell it for scrap basically three years later and I was still paying off the debt. So it's funny because despite his best efforts to educate his kids on money we still make these dumb mistakes but you got to make your own mistakes to kind of learn from them i think right yeah from that point on you know made a couple other small mistakes and i was in college trying to figure out what i wanted to do with my life and you know i asked my dad at one point what would you do if you had to do it all again and he told me he'd be a dentist like why would you be a dentist? And he said, you still get to be an entrepreneur, which is very important to him, right? Like not having a boss and being able to control your own destiny to a large degree. So he said, you still get to be an entrepreneur and run your own business, but you also get a license to print money. Okay. That's the best of both worlds. But for about nine months, I thought I was going to be a dentist and I got into sciences at, you know, UBC university. And I realized in the first semester, I had absolutely no business being a dentist. Like science was not my thing. I had to upgrade a bunch of like grade 11 chemistry courses just to get in. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was totally out of my depth. And then I bumped into a friend of mine and he was actually an old neighbor of mine that I hadn't seen in years. And he said, oh, you should take the Canadian securities course, like just to learn about money for yourself, like for self-education on how markets work, how money works, not as a career path. And I was still going to school for science, but I ordered the course, the textbook. I, I remember getting through the first couple of chapters and just like light bulb went off. I love it. I love this stuff. And this is what I want to do, right? So I immediately dropped all my courses at UBC and just went into it full time and basically have been in the industry ever since. So that's kind of how I started to learn about money and then how I got into the financial planning world.
0: Thanks for sharing that. I didn't have a tally going, but the amount of times you referenced your father, I could hear just this, the impact he has had on your money story. And it seems, as you mentioned, the tone in your voice changes to one of It seems to me admiration or silliness, even that thinking back to that stock example. Yeah. Where do you think your father's drive for for money came from? Did he ever share, or did you ever pick up on where this, what it seems like just hearing this piece of the story, that there was quite Mm -hmm. a bit of focus on money?
2: For him, I think it was simply a means. I don't think he had desires to be ultra wealthy or anything like that. Then, you know, an example, when I was 16 or 17, around that same time, I was working in his tile store just like once every on the weekends kind of thing, 50 bucks a day, sweep the floors. And his tile store was a mess. It was, it was dusty. There was no showroom. Like the store itself was the warehouse and his whole business model was like very good quality. It was the Costco model. Basically it was very good quality stuff at very, you know, very low prices, but he would import it from. Italy and Spain and these places. But it was dusty and it was messy and the boxes of tile were out on the floor. And I was like, why don't you clean this place up, have a showroom, why don't you expand? Like you could do a franchise or something. He's like, why would I want to add all of that work to myself when what I'm doing right now works and can get me to where I want to go? So he wasn't in it to create an empire. He was he saw the business as a means to financial freedom. Right. So I don't think his drive was anything but having control over his own destiny financially and using the business as a means to to retire early that was really it for him i don't think he was passionate about floors you know i don't think i don't know if anybody's passionate about tile and floors but yeah he had worked for his older brother who had started a tile store and so when he was like 21 or something trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life he's the only thing i know about is tile so i'm just going to start a tile company and he did and that's where he ended up for, for his whole life basically
0: i read online i can't remember what article, but. It reminded me, you mentioned something that your father said growing up, which was control your money or it'll control you. And it reminded me of the research in around just the formation of our money beliefs and the money mottos, we call them, that really we cognitively hear this control your money or it'll control you. But it has this deeply ingrained impact that really starts to snowball and impact how we think, feel, and behave with money. Maybe just touch on this idea control your money or it'll control you. As it maybe take us back to the age, I don't know how old you mm. heard that, but what would that, yeah, I guess, what sense were you making of that statement at that time when you first heard it?
2: Yeah, and it was his motto, really. He used to, time we were talking about money or finance, he would say that. So I think it was kind of his guiding light in a lot of ways, and it probably grounded him a lot in terms of what he was doing, why he was doing it. And at the time, I don't recall any deep understanding of the meaning of it because I didn't have experience with money. My experience with money was asking my dad for money to go buy a Nintendo game or something. You know what I mean? Or I need a new computer to play Diablo because it just came out and my friends got it. I need it. I got to go. I need $3,000 <laughs> to build a supercomputer. You know what I mean? So my experience with money at that point and having, you know, you're 12, 13, 14, you don't earn it. And some people do, right? But I mean, sure, I had an allowance and that type of thing. But So that motto of his didn't really... It didn't really resonate at the time, but I distinctly remember him, him using that, that sentence quite frequently. And then I probably didn't really understand it, to be honest, until I started dealing with clients and seeing the different situations that people get themselves into, right? I started my career in financial planning and investment advice at a credit union and people from all walks of life, right? So you see the huge disparity in income and wealth and people who have painted themselves into a corner by using their money ineffectively, by not saving enough, by taking on debts. And some of this is just by you know, bad luck. It's nobody's fault necessarily, but you can see the huge dispersion of outcomes that are out there. And you can see the holes that people get themselves into that are very difficult to catch up on, very difficult to get out of. You know, People coming in to take out cash immediately after getting paid because they've got to go pay off a payday loan or something like that. And then you see the other side of it People who are essentially financially free or wealthy or have high incomes, who are very good at managing debt, very good at managing cash flow. And so you can tell that there's a group, and it, you can't just bisect this group you know, perfectly, but it's a spectrum, but there's a group of people who are controlled by their finances. right? They are in a hole, and the, the options that are available to them in terms of how they're going to live their life are constrained by the financial situation that they're in, whether it was their fault or not. And then you can see the other side of that, the sort of level of freedom and safety from the people who had either better education or just better behavior or just better finances. They were not controlled by their money in the same way. So it probably wasn't until I really started to see that sort of dichotomy, that spectrum, that I understood what he meant. Like you can easily paint yourself into a corner that's very difficult to get out of and you've given up control of your life and all of a sudden you're effectively a slave to your financial circumstances.
1: Right.
0: Thank you for that. Do you have a piece of paper? I can get not one. Accessible?
2: If I not, it. it's Even okay. More.
0: But sorry, I didn't prep you for that. No, that's that's okay. okay. Yep. I see you've got some art behind you and a guitar. So I figure, you know what? Let's do some drawing here too.
2: I'm a terrible artist. That's I okay. I didn't draw. That, the, these are the, not my drawings.
0: <laughs> <laughs> can you just draw a big oval, like an egg, on your paper? This sure. is a. An exercise from Dr. Ted Klontz, we've been kind of touching on some of them. So you talked about your father and that early money memory of picking stocks in the paper, which kind of led into the school experiment. So if you could just draw a section of there, like a quarter of that egg and just Mm -hmm. write that the stock picking there. This exercise has been proven. helping people work through the relationship with money. And then you don't need to share this, but if you could write one word, when you think about that experience, one word that represents your feeling. So a feeling in that Mm. stock picking exchange that you had with your
2: father. You want me to write that in the same sort of quadrant?
0: Yeah, the same. same, It's part of that section.
2: Okay. want me to share it?
0: We will in a moment. Now in another part of the egg, probably the next to it, from your story, I know you grew up with a mother as well. Can you think back to any first memorable experience that you had with your mother and just write it down in there? A financial experience? Yeah. Money experience, any yeah. sort of money yeah. experience, money memory. It could be anything. And then a feeling that you associate with that memory. And it helps if you draw a little image and that's optional for yourself.
2: I put a stick man down, but I don't know if that's going to be that helpful, okay. but we will keep it in mind.
0: And then above it, after these two memorable money experience with your mother and father, any other figure that you grew up with could be an uncle, could be a grandparent, could be anybody else, but Mm earlier in your money memory, another figure that provided you with a money memory, can you put it down in another section? You can make a third section of this egg. Okay. And then again, put that feeling that you associate with it. In the next one, While you can't distinctly say it's all your own, but think of the first money memory that you feel like you cultivated on your own. So it wouldn't be your father opening up the newspaper, Mm -hmm. money memory that you feel like you cultivated on your own. So just jot that down. And then the feeling that you associate with that memory. Okay. Okay. And the final one is the most recent money memory, money experience that you've had. That is enough significance that you're going to write it down here. And this will fill out the final part of the egg. And then again, the feeling that you associate with it. Okay. So the reason why I decided to do this is I like this explanation you had around control your money or control you. And as you bridged into talking as a financial planner, it made me think of the struggle that many of us have clients or even financial planners that we know To do certain things, save money, more Mm. education. Sometimes that education is not accessible. And that's a whole nother topic. But doing that work can be difficult sometimes. And I like to look at it as the iceberg. Like us talking to people, like you and I talking, is the tip of the iceberg. But underneath that iceberg, the the meat and potatoes, the whole entirety of that iceberg really drives those thoughts, feelings, and beliefs that we have that we can see. And this exercise helps us expose below the iceberg. Which then can help us make sense of, hey, this is why I think, feel, and do what I do with money. So when you look at this egg, so this is called the money egg exercise, it's got a whole bunch of cracks in it, like there's five of them, Mm -hmm. which represents different parts of you that influence how you think, feel, and behave with money. So when you look at the entirety, if you had to complete the sentence, the moral of my money story is, what would you put based on all these different sections of your story?
2: That's a good one. The moral of my money story is, you're going to have to give me a minute to think about this. Yeah. This is the first time I've done an exercise like this. So it's going to take a little bit of mental fortitude to to think of something meaningful. Give me a moment. I'd say progress. And that's probably, maybe that's a common answer or a common feeling. But at the same time, those early lessons, the early mistakes that I've made, like I'm not, I'm not a perfect financial planner for myself, even, you know, they say doctors are the worst patients. I think that's often true of ourselves as well, right? Like we we are the last client that we think of sometimes. And if I just kind of look at the egg, there seems to be almost a chronological kind of thread as we went through those. And in every section, if you will, there was something that was kind of built on top of something else. So it was some, something kind of foundational and then another memory that I could relate back to the previous one and in every case there was some level of progress whether it was in education or I'll give you an example one of them was my mom was very I mean financially illiterate I'll say because my father took care of everything so my money memory with her is just a distinct memory of her having absolutely no idea what was going on with her own finances but then as I was doing my education and I was talking to her more about money I was able to kind of elucidate some of the things that I was learning about to her. And I think there was maybe even progress for her, but it was selfishly this was progress for me as well. So I don't know if that's the type of answer you're looking for, but I also think of where I'm at today and thinking about the future, there's a long way to go. And I certainly don't know it all. I think I'm pretty good at what I do, but there's a lot I don't know that I'm continuously learning. And so for me, I think that's kind of the moral of my story is, and it's not linear, but I'd say progress.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate that. Mark, you saying this makes you a good financial planner, recognizing that, no, even us, we don't have it figured out. I mean, none of us really do have it figured out, but I think that I like this idea of progress. So with this idea of progress really coming forward, if you were to say today, and I would like to get back into this, the story that you did share on Twitter, because I think it shows, I think another shift in your thinking. Cause I get the sentiment when I read your story online is there's this, shift in your thinking around identity. What are we retiring to? And that speaks to this idea, this moral of progress of not holding things rigid. When you look at yourself today in terms of your money relationship, what does progress mean? Speak deeper Mm -hmm. to this idea of progress. You took time to think about that word.
2: Yeah, I think I'll give you an example. And again, I'm going to bring up my dad, but I had asked him at one point, I think it was around the same time that I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I had this distinct idea that he had it all figured out. I don't know, you look up to whoever influences you, your father figures or your role models or your mentors, and you get this feeling that they've got it all figured out. I remember asking him, I was at my mom's house, I was right after dinner. And I don't remember exactly what words I used, but I indicated like, Hey, you've got it all figured out. What do I do? Like with my life, what do I do to get to that point where you know everything? You've got it all figured out. Your trajectory is mapped out. Everything's perfect. And he just laughed and he's like, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. And he was in his fifties, right? It was a bit of an epiphany for me because it was like, oh, like at his age. And even with my understanding of him having it all sorted out, he just flat out admitted he's like, I don't, not only do I not have it all figured out, like I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm basically faking it till I make it. And I'm in my fifties kind of thing, right? I was like, wow. Okay. And that was a bit earth shattering because I thought there was this life hack. There, there was something missing that I could just do to kind of get myself on that trajectory. And, and that's certainly not the case. And it was that moment that I kind of realized it. So I guess bringing it back to that idea of progress, like you don't know what the future is going to hold. Have you ever seen that illustration? And I can't remember who, who drew it, but it's a green line that shows the past and it's the path that you took. And then it's current day. And then it's a multitude, hundreds of different potential paths forward, right? You don't know which path you're going to be on. And so... For me, that sort of concept of progress is to just continuously improve, do the right actions, take care of the right things today. And the probability is you will end up in a place that you're okay with later on. And and it's difficult because with clients, like we talk about goals, we talk about what's your vision, you know, what's important, where do you want to go? And I think what I have realized is that most people don't have concrete goals. Like most people don't say, I want to retire at 63 and a half with $92,000 after tax per year. And I want to give exactly this amount of money to charity. Some people do have those types of goals mapped up, but very few of them do. Like for the most part, you're going to be off course, like your whole life. And you're just trying to land in the right spot at the end of the day. And so for me, that progress is avoiding catastrophic mistakes at the end of the day, making good decisions and ensuring that <clears throat> with every passing day, with every passing moment, you're improving yourself. You're improving the world around you. You're improving the situation for your family. Um, I think that's really all you can control at the end of the day.
0: It really sounds like it's coming through with a lot of your own reflection on your own story that has gone deeper than those textbooks. Because you're not giving me the savings rate that's going to yeah. get me to that savings goal where the 4% rule doesn't matter. And nope. I, can, I don't have to worry about my withdrawal rate because Mark got me to save as much as I could. While those are important, I just hear you have been able to go into your own story. What significance has that allowed you in both operating your new father not new father a newer father of two when you look at your own story what impacts if anything at all has this helped you blend this idea that hey i've got mark at home i've got mark with the clients i've got mark with my studies how if anything has this progress helped you shape your own call it relationship Mm -hmm. with money that allows to blend the whole of your life
2: Yeah, it's a great question, too. And you're right. You wear so many different hats, right? Especially if you're raising a a young family and then you've got their obligations, in my case, to other family members. You've got your work, your education, you know, got all these things that you're supposed to be doing, right? And it's hard to do all of them exceptionally well because you're just pulled in so many different directions, right? And so I think, you know, you said it's not about work life balance, but I think in a big way it is, right? Do you want to spend your time building an empire? Like the thing that I fear is that. My kids won't know me if i work too hard right and that wasn't my case growing up that was not my dad did not do that he was 40 hours a week he had his two days off he was there every ball game every hockey game never missed a thing but that was by design right because he could have done that he could have gone and opened up additional stores he could have expanded he could have renovated and he could have not been there and he could have been wealthier financially as a result and he never talked about this to me but i have a feeling that he did that very intentionally and I can see how easy it is for anyone to get on that sort of path of your identity becomes your career or the thing that you do. And it's just easy to, here, this is my home office. It's sometimes just easy for me to escape in here and just come and do work. It's my little den, my little escape from that. And I enjoy the work that I do. And so I think you have to reflect a lot on that and think about that time that's being spent and where else it, it could be spent. And whether those, you know, those, those dividends are going to be paid here or with your family or a combination of both it's at the end of the day it's just allocating time and resources so I've thought about that a lot I think I could work hard and become super wealthy and I just don't think I'm going to look back when I'm 90 years old and be like I should have made more money I should have worked harder and spent less time with my family so now when I make decisions about my own life and you know big decisions I often try to project myself out and look back and I've found just personally for me that hasn't steered me wrong
0: You know, Mark, when you said that, I fear working too much, like you you shot up a bit when you said fear. Yeah. Your father was around. He said he went to the baseball games. He went to the hockey games. I'm not sure if your mother was around for those times. Yeah. Where do you think this fear is coming from if you didn't experience that working too much and not being home?
2: Yeah yeah it's a great question and this is not a reflection of you know, the industry or the firm that i work for or anything like that i think it's more a reflection of myself and my, maybe the reward system that uh, that kind of i guess encourages me but i because i love what i do again it's very easy for my work to become my hobby in a lot of ways so but that's not necessarily healthy like to a degree it, maybe it is like i found something that i love to do that i think i'm good at that It can create an income for me and my family, but then it's easier to just do more and more of that. And I can just see that if I keep doing what I'm doing, and if I keep adding, I'm going to work an extra 10 minutes here, I'm going to sneak into the office on the weekends. I'm, I'm relatively good at doing that. But again, you know, projecting myself forward, I can see that it can be a very slippery slope. And if you don't control your time and dedicate time to those other areas of your life, you will probably find yourself slipping more and more into that thing that's easy, which for me, again, is just pop into the office, get some work done. That's easy. My, my office is at my house. and I love what I do. So it's not a fear that I grew up with or anything. It's just a fear of making, not making, you know, the wrong decision, so to speak, but not, not making the right decisions, maybe, right? Making sure that I'm not on my phone in the evening or not working on the weekends and that type of thing. Because it's just, especially these days, my whole career is in my pocket, right? I can contact clients or colleagues or whatever so I think it's just a matter of making sure that I reflect on that and I don't go down that path
0: thanks for sharing that and again I just I could hear this reflective nature that you have in your journey and maybe that stems before or the story with your father and we'll continue on that or maybe that came after or a mix of both or you probably can't pinpoint it but it reminds mm-hmm. me of this idea that if we're sailing in the ocean I'm not a sailor but I'm imagining I'm that we have yeah. to constantly be changing our sails to adjust for the winds and the currents yeah. so that we can continue on our destination in our financial lives. As we navigate them, we have to change our beliefs, patterns, or habits to what you're talking about as we reveal more information about ourselves so we don't end up maybe sailing to the wrong island just to find out at the end of life that, hey, this was the wrong island. Yeah, or really- just
2: sinking all together.
0: Are sinking, yeah. And, you know, there's both that's sinking where I just got it wrong on the journey or this other perspective of I sailed there, I got to the island. And it's, I guess, that idea that we could have all the money in the world or get to the island, but if it's not the money or we're not choosing to spend the money where we want, it's a hard lesson to wait until that time. So before we get back into your father's story, I just have a question. You talk about, your own things of prioritizing is what I hear I'm saying, hear you saying with work-life balance. Let's imagine you're at that 90-year-old mark, probably older because of technology. You're at end of life, like whatever the age that is, your very last conscious moment. What do you think Mark would have had to have done throughout his life? Maybe the top three things to say that I did it, I lived a good life.
2: Yeah. That's such a big question, eh? I think first and foremost for me, my immediate family, like my wife and kids are the first you know, barometer that I'm going to use to, to measure that. Did I, did I do well by them? Did I have good relationships with them? Did I leave a positive impact, I guess, on their lives? Were they better off because of their relationship with me? And again, this isn't, you know, I think some people have that type of feeling because maybe they'd had a, a bad relationship with their parents and they want to kind of break that cycle. That's not at all what the case is for me, but I think like, actually envisioning myself, you know, in that hospital bed or whatever it is, and reflecting on that sort of final moment and who you want to be in that room with you at that time. Like, the people I think, of course, are my wife and my two kids, right? Um, so, did I do well by them? And then I think the second thing is probably, did I leave a lasting beneficial impact outside of my family, too, right? Did you leave the world a better place than you came into it? And that's really difficult to say, right? I mean, I'm not talking about leaving like a huge foundation or anything like that, but even in the day-to-day interact, like part of what I love about what I do Mm. and it's selfish is the thank you that I get from people at the end of it. Right. And I do a lot of work, you know, maybe for free, like people just asking me questions and, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot and I spend a lot of time with people just answering questions. People offer to pay me for stuff all the time. And I'm like, you know, of course, no, you're not going to pay me to answer questions or can I pay you an hourly rate to just pick your brain kind of thing. And I don't like charging for that, even though so I'm a terrible business owner. My dad would be mortified because I can't charge for the services that I'm providing sometimes, but I enjoy doing that. And at the end of the day, it's that sort of thank you, you helped me feeling that I get a huge reward out of that. And so when I look back on my life, I don't think it's necessarily that I leave some billion dollar foundation that's you know donating money to various charities. I think it's just more in the day-to-day interactions that I have with the people, not just clients, but people in the community. Am I leaving people better off by having conversed with me? I think those are probably the two big things that I'm going to reflect on.
0: I appreciate that. Thank you so much. You know, in the study of well-being, those daily interactions and the meaning we bring are really big elements that help increase our well-being. So you speak directly to the research as opposed to just using money as a barometer or scorecard that I left this amount mm-hmm. of money as opposed to making impacts all along the way. Yeah, I think that's important because you say selfishly. You like those thank yous, but I know, I can assume the people on the other side are also enjoying those conversations as well.
2: Yeah, no, and for sure. And that is the thing that I enjoy the most is that they've benefited, right? So it's not the act of saying thank you. It's knowing that I walked away from that conversation and they're better off for it. Mm -hmm. I I gave them good advice. That's really rewarding for me. And I've only realized that I think over the past, maybe the past 18 months or two years, really, as I've thought about this more and more. And honestly, my wife is a big part of me figuring that out for myself. Like just in doing all the work that I do for clients and just all the work around you know, running your own, your own practice to a degree, you start to really think about what aspects of this am I good at and do I enjoy and what aspects of this are not ideal for me and should be done by somebody else. And so through conversations with my wife, we kind of just eventually got to this point where it's like, what do you really like about what you do? And it was that that helping people, discussing things with people, making their day better, and and having them leave the conversation better off than they came into it.
0: That's great that you guys can have those type of conversations. So as we talk about these money stories, with your father, from what I understand on Twitter, and I did listen to the Rational Reminder when you talked about the story, it seems like there was a shift in your thinking with this event Specifically around this idea, like your Twitter post said, What are you retiring to? Would you, are you able to go back to your story with your father to kind of lead up to how and why this shifting
2: has changed for you? Yeah, sure. If you want me to tell a yeah. condensed version of the story, yeah, sure. So we've talked about a lot about him already, but on top of the things I said, I think there's uh, some other characteristics that are important for your listeners to know going into this story. One is that he was very social, had lots of friends, got along well with a lot of people. He was fairly cutthroat as a businessman but his close friends were his close friends for life and he spent a lot of time with them he was also very active he at one point he was a scratch golfer and he golfed probably weekly at least for decades and it was his thing he loved golf rain or shine so he was quite active in that respect he also was a swimmer and just for fitness he wasn't competitive or anything like that but he would spend usually two to three days a week at the pool and he would swim about 80 laps every single time so he was super fit right like in his 50s like he always showing off. He was a black belt in karate as well. So growing up, a lot of his discipline in business and in life, he attributes to his karate and just the lessons that he learned and then the discipline that, that taught him. So he used to do things like one-finger push-ups and stuff. He would do stuff like throw a kick and like just hang his heel you know, six inches from your face. And it was just a reminder of his dominance, but he was half-joking. like he, It wasn't a threat. It was more like, remember, your old man still got it kind of thing, right? He would do pistol pistol squats, like one-legged squat, all these things. And for him, it was fun. It was just, he was showing off and stuff. But the point is he was super fit. He was super active, he was super disciplined. And so I'd mentioned that this business for him was a means to an end. It wasn't his passion. He wasn't gonna do it till he was a hundred years old. He wanted to live a very long life. He spent a lot of time reading about longevity. And I, remember, I distinctly remember a book about the people of Okinawa, who I believe have the highest proportion of centenarians geographically on the planet. So they live long. I think a lot of that's attributed to lifestyle and diet. And so he would try to follow some of these mantras because he planned to stay healthy and live a very long time. So anyways, going through his business transition, he ended up selling his business at 58. And it was kind of a surprise to all of us. Like my mom and him, Didn't have money conversations like my mom had absolute and neither did we absolutely no idea what his financial position was because he was just the type of guy that my mom needed money. Here you go. Don't worry about it. I've got it under control. We're going to be fine. That was about the extent of the conversations that they had. So when he sold the business, we were out for dinner one day at a pub or something and over a beer. He just kind of cheers and said, I sold the company. Like, I'm done. I retire. Effective like next month when the deal closes kind of thing. And we were thrilled for him. That's all he really ever wanted to do is retire early. He was a big traveler, too. I didn't mention that. He spent a lot of time traveling. He traveled with his friends and with his brothers. And so we were thrilled. And then there's a bit of a honeymoon phase. We bought like a one-way ticket to Asia and Southeast Asia. And he traveled all around there with his, his friends and his brothers. Had a great time. Came back. And then he just got bored, like, really quickly. You know, you can only travel and golf, swim so much. And then he kind of was looking for something to do. So he went and talked to the guys that he sold the shop to. And he started working there a couple of days a week for like lunch money, basically. Right. Didn't need the money, obviously. And he took the cash just, you know, like he, he called it beer money. And uh, the reason for that was just the social aspect of it. I think his best friend was his first employee. So his best friend had been working for him. But right. he, When he hired him, he, the kid was like 17 at the time and they just became best buddies and he worked with them for 30 years. And so I think he just missed that interaction at the store, right? It was a small store, two or three employees and they were his friends. So he went back and worked for them. But then he started to decline really quickly after that. Like mentally, he was still sharp, but you could just kind of see that there there was like a spark was missing. And it was very difficult to, I think, to realize the severity of it at the time. Like you notice he was off, but he didn't attribute it to anything, right? Bad day, bad week, bad month, whatever. (laughs) Maybe something happened with his friends. He didn't tell us about it or who knows what's going on, but he just kind of wasn't himself. And then I remember one day he stopped enjoying steak. that was very strange to me because this is a man who ate meat like seven days a week. He would go to the wholesalers for restaurants and he would buy boxes of 200 steaks. And we had like multiple deep freezers in our house. And so there was steak on the menu like seven days a week, steak and seafood, right? And you get it from the wholesalers because he was buying it in such huge quantities. And then just one day he just kind of said, I don't like steak anymore. I was like, that doesn't make sense. And then one day he didn't like Corona anymore. He loved Corona. What are you talking about you don't like? So there was these like physiological changes, I think, that were happening. And he started to kind of get a little bit, he was becoming, I think, physically weaker as well. Like he wasn't swimming as much and golfing. He was kind of down more. So it was just odd at the time. Again, I didn't really attribute anything serious to it. It was just kind of strange that the guy that I knew was kind of becoming somebody else. And then one day he he called me from the psychiatric ward of UBC hospital and I checked myself in. I was having dark thoughts. I was having intrusive thoughts. I checked myself into the psych ward. Wow. So I went and visited him. We had a chat. He walked through the psych ward with me and he was like saying hi to the patients there. Like he'd become chummy with some of the people there. And I remember he told me, he's like, I shouldn't have done this. I don't belong here. I'm not, I don't have the, I don't have the level of problems that these people are experiencing. I don't, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I shouldn't have checked myself and I'm fine. They gave me a prescription and, and I'm going to check myself out. And we thought, okay, great. So it's not that bad, right? But it was that bad. And he actually started getting worse and worse. And you could just kind of see this depression kind of kicking in. And then one day he crashed my mom's car. And that was very strange for me because he was an exceptional driver. I don't think I remember him having even so much as a speeding ticket in 30 years. You know what I mean? And where he crashed his car was an intersection that he used to drive to and from work every single day for over 20 years. So he knew this intersection well. and It was a J-curve intersection. So what he ended up doing was blowing through a red light at like nearly 100 kilometers an hour through this and he ended up going straight through and he rolled the car over an embankment and into a strip mall basically not into a building but into the mall itself and they had to use the jaws of life to get him out like the car was a complete wreck and we i just remember being at my mom's house we were supposed to meet him for dinner and he didn't show up which is also very strange for him i remember my mom just had this moment this like lightning bolt just hit her and she just burst into tears and was like something is wrong and she just had this feeling that something was wrong so we called the police and they showed up and they took it seriously and while we were talking to the police, my brother actually noticed that the police officer got something on his headset, like he had his little headset in. And so in the middle of a conversation, he kind of did one of these where he turned away and disconnected from our conversation. And my brother noticed it and was like, you just got some kind of news. Like, what was it? And he just turned to us and he said, your father's alive, but we we're like, but what? He's like, but he was in an accident. He's in the hospital. And so we were relieved that we knew what had happened and that he was alive. But it wasn't until we started driving to the hospital that I realized we had no idea what condition he was in. All we knew is that he was alive. He could have been paralyzed. He could have been in coma for all we knew, right? We got to the hospital and there wasn't a scratch on him. Like he was wearing his seatbelt. He was fine. They like had to use the jaws of life to get him out. And the only thing he had was a scratch on his head, not even a cut, but just a scratch. And he was very emotional at the hospital. Like he was holding my mom's hand and like talking about how much he loved us and how, you know, scared he was from that experience and everything. But it just kind of wasn't adding up. I'm like, here's a guy who I know is an exceptional driver through an intersection. at a he didn't speed. What's he doing going 40 kilometers over the speed limit through this intersection, rolling his car? And so I called his friend, his best friend. I was like, what's your take on this? He said, I didn't want to tell you, but I'm telling you because I think it's serious. He hid his wallet and his ID under a trash can in a parkade. And he called me before the accident and said, my wallet and my ID are under this trash can in this underground parkade. And his friend was very confused by this. And the only thing I can think of now, looking back, is that he didn't want to be identified for some reason. And so he left his identity, his physical identification cards, his wallet and his credit cards, in a different physical spot. And I think that was just, like, of course, in hindsight, that's ridiculous. That's not how they're going to necessarily identify you. Like, we've got the license plate on the vehicle. But I think in his brain, that was a way to kind of disconnect the trauma that he might invoke through this act on our family and so I think in hindsight it was a suicide attempt he never said that he never mentioned that afterwards but from that point on he was terrified that the police were coming after him for the accident and we could we just could not get it out of his head that what he had done didn't hurt anybody they they took blood tests and everything to check for you know any drugs or alcohol in the system he was totally sober he didn't commit a crime he didn't even get so much as a ticket he was convinced that the police were after him so he started this deep paranoia just enveloped him and he just could not escape it. And so you could just see the fear in his face from that point on. And that just exacerbated things. It just made things worse. Like this fear consumed him. And the next thing I remember is it was a really foggy night in October and I was living in East Vancouver at the time. He grew up in Richmond. So that's about a 45 minute drive for those of you not familiar. And I got a call in the middle of the night. It was about 11 o'clock at night actually but I was sleeping and it was a private number. So I just dismissed it. They called back right away. So that concerned me. So I picked it up. There's the police. He said, You've got to drive to your mom's house. She's upset. Gotta go see her. I thought that was very strange. My mom's up. I just woke up from a sleep. My mom's upset and I've got to drive across town in the middle of the night. What are you talking about? So just go see your mom. I was like, look, if I'm driving across town, you gotta to tell me why. And I just I remember the pause in the police officer's voice, and then he just said, Your father's dead. And it just the wind just comes. I mean, what else? Well, the emotions that strike you at that point. And I just, I remember dropping to my knees. And the first thing I said, and the only thing I remember saying was I had so much to tell him. And that was just my initial reaction, right? And so my wife's trying to console me. And that's the thing that I remember being so devastating to me is that like I had so many stories to share with him and so many things I wanted to pick his brain about. And there's so many interactions that were now impossible as a result of his, of his passing. And so we were crushed, of course, and then drove back to my, over to my mom's house. And, and that was that, but on reflecting on it and why I wrote the story on Twitter is I think this all came down to his business. So whether he's, whether he saw the business as a means to an end or not, it was more than that to him and it was his identity. He was, you know, I called the story, the tile guy. Cause I think he was the tile guy, you know, in town. There weren't a ton of tile shops, and that was the thing that he did for people, right? So for me, it's that those conversations where I'm leaving people better off, that's the thing that he did for people. It's the thing that he did to help people was to sell them the right tile for their house at a good price and so they could get their renovations done or their new house build done and feel good about it. And he filled that role for people. And I think his identity was partially wrapped up in that. And when he severed that instantly, I think it was incredibly anticlimactic to him. So your analogy about sailing to that island. And you finally get there, and it's just not all you thought it was going to be. And you've spent your whole life on that boat sailing there. And it's the thing that is supposed to be the destination. And you get there, and you're just not happy about it, right? And I think that's what really undid him at the end of the day. So when I talk about, you know, know what you're retiring to, that's what I'm talking about. Is no, And it's hard to do, but you've got to think about what's on the other side of this. And this vision, this dream you've built for yourself that, that retirement is supposed to be the keys to may not be all it's cracked up to be. And you have to find purpose in other things. Because once you give away that, that purpose, that identity, you may find yourself you may find yourself to be very lonely.
0: Mark, I admire your courage to, to share that story, to share it with others. And like I said earlier, the response you got could show how it resonated with others. When you talk about progress, your money story from your money egg exercise, it seems to me the story in your father, you seem to have such care for him that this idea of progress has really been impacted. especially with you having two young kids. And when you talked about that work-life balance and the fear that you had that you would go too far, it seems like in a way your father's legacy and what has happened here in the lessons is really attributed to this. I don't know if it's a new way of thinking progress. I just met you, but- uh, right. There was this, like, again, I really noticed that fear was a, it was a word that there was some emotion under it, but yet you're talking about spending more time with your kids or having the awareness that, hey, maybe I shouldn't work this much. So I wonder if you can mm-hmm. touch on how much of your progress has been attributed to many of these lessons that your father, not just this last one, but so many of his mm-hmm. lessons.
2: Yeah. And like I said, it's only really recently that I've started to reflect on this more and as I tell the story, I recognize more and more of those characteristics that he had that I hadn't really thought of, right? So like when I wrote that story on Twitter, I heard literally from hundreds of people that had either gone through something similar, may not have had the same outcome or the same ending, but had gone through some sort of difficult time either with themselves or with their own parents surrounding that, that identity crisis that people can, can have when they're transitioning to retirement. So I think, first of all, I started to realize how common it was. And I've talked to literally hundreds of people about, and I tried to respond to all of them. I remember staying up almost all night that first night because I was getting hundreds of direct messages on Twitter and I didn't want to leave any of them unanswered because it's such a personal story. These people reached out to me to share their own personal story. And if nothing else, I owed it to them to say, thank you for sharing, right? But it it took a lot to, to have these conversations. And so I've, through that, through telling the story, through interacting with people who've had similar situations, it's allowed me to just reflect more and more on that story. And I mentioned this earlier, but I think my dad designed his work, his business, such that he didn't have to work 100 hours a week. He chose to work the 40 hours a week. He chose to do the amount of work that was required for him to end up with financial independence, but at the same time be around and do the things he wanted to do. I mean, his family to us, we were important to him, of course, but so was golf and so was swimming and so were his friends. And he wanted to make sure that he was designing a life for himself, I think, where he could accomplish all of those things. And so as I reflect more and more on it, I have a deeper respect for the way that he did that. And I think in a lot of ways, I, I want to do the same for myself to a degree. And I don't know if it's because of the way that he did it, but it's just such a great example to me of somebody who made those choices. And yeah, the ending, you know, it wasn't a happy ending, but I think he did it well all, all along. And so for me, you know, him being a role model of mine, I can anchor myself to that story and say, It is possible. And look, and here I am telling his story, your point with great admiration. And so he has left that legacy regardless of the outcome. So I want to do the same.
0: This is the power of stories. I think about my own story. And unfortunately, tonight I have to miss my son's soccer game. But I've always made sure I'm at all those soccer games. Yeah, And I, I think about just, yeah, even your dad is making an impact on me thinking of the kids, you know. You can have both You, in terms of you can work, you can be an entrepreneur, but be at the soccer and baseball games. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember
2: it. It's both. So we, I played baseball and hockey. Looking back and we're talking 25 years ago, it left a very positive impression on me. Like he, he was always there and he sponsored our teams and stuff. Like he was involved. And my mom was, we're talking about my dad. My mom was hugely involved as well. I'm not trying to you know, the this, this story here is about my dad, but my mom was there as well. And she was the registrar for the baseball league and everything else. She did a ton of stuff for us. So that was really important to them. And looking back, I have a deep appreciation for that because that wasn't the case. Like there were kids on our hockey team that were showing up on the bus with their hockey gear. Their parents weren't there. I don't know what the circumstances were, but their parents weren't there at the games and at the practices, right? And my parents were. And, and that's, so that's really important to me because it, it left it left a very strong impression on me that they took the time to do that when they didn't necessarily have to. And they would both come to the games, right? I mean, sometimes my brother is playing at a different mm-hmm. time or whatever. But to your point, I mean, and life comes up. You can't you can't make every single game. You can't make every single dance recital. But I think it's important that we make an effort to do so.
0: I think that's the richness of life. Yeah. So as we come to a close here, if you were to just think about your relationship with money, say you decided to write a book about money and our relationship with it today. What do you think Mm -hmm. you would name that title which really highlights what money means to you or your relationship with money?
2: Wow. What would I name the title of my book? I mean, I'd probably name it Control Your Money or Your Money Will Control You. I still use that often. I use it in my own discussions with clients. And I think it does, it illustrates many different facets of someone's financial life, because it's not about working so hard that you have tons of money. It's just about using it efficiently and effectively towards the desired outcome. And that desired outcome for you might be different than that desired outcome is for me, for our friends or our colleagues or whoever it is. But the alternative is that you don't have control over it. And your destiny will be chosen for you as a result of your financial circumstances. So I think, uh, yeah, I think, and in honor of my dad, I think that'd be the title of my book.
0: I'm sure he's smiling. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. Mark, thank you for joining us today. I don't know if you have any parting thoughts or concluding thoughts, I should say, because we're not ending right now, but any concluding Mm -hmm. thoughts on your own experience navigating your own money story? Mm -hmm. Because Again, I keep highlighting this, but people reaching out those hundreds of messages because we're all having these money stories that too often we just can't talk about. So any final comments that you want to share just on navigating your own money story?
2: I think one thing that's become really apparent to me is that you need to talk about it. And that not like with your kids, with your family, with outside professionals, but it's a very, it's a very complex world, money. And it's very personal, very, very personal not just in terms of your own experiences and attitudes and behaviors towards money, but in terms of what you need those dollars to do for you and for your family, right? And this is why I have, says keep finance personal on that sign. It's for that reason. And you mentioned like things like the 4% rule and stuff earlier. I hate these rules of thumb because they're just, they just don't apply in practice. It's just aggregate information. And every single person is an individual data point. And these rules of thumbs and their outcomes and their situation are totally different. And sure, they make up the aggregate data, but When you're working with somebody one-on-one or when you're thinking about your own life, you are just a single data point on those aggregate studies and your outcomes are important to you and to your family, right? And it's very difficult to navigate all of that by yourself. I have an accountant. I have an estate lawyer that does my estate planning work. Like I could do a lot of this stuff myself. I just, I recognize that if I'm not having discussions with other people, I don't know what I don't know. Right, And this isn't a plug for go hire an advisor, it's just Mm -hmm. make sure you're being transparent with people that are in that trusted circle of yours, because you will find ways to improve your situation, your mindset, you know, temper some of your bad behaviors. So don't keep it all bottled in necessarily and, and seek help. And my last point on that is, I've realized through this experience, there are lots of companies and coaches out there that specialize in the psychological transition that people face when they go into retirement. And I actually like in hindsight, of course, there's, uh, there's people that do this, but I hadn't really stumbled across it. And through that story, a number of firms reached out and said, hey, we help people with this. Let's talk. And it's been really fascinating. And it's really impressive the work that these people do for families to make sure that they handle that transition effectively, the emotional and psychological part of it, not just the financial one. So, so I'll leave you with
0: that. I appreciate that. Lots of me is saying, no, go to the song. But I got one last question. Your answers are leading me to want to ask this question. Your father provided this legacy to help you be there, do meaningful work, the tile guy. You know, that's meaningful work to him. You're the finance guy, but yet you still want to be there with your kids to make it to their future sporting events. I know you want to teach some music to your kids as they grow older or take lessons with them. Yep. Let's fast forward to your kids are 20 and you're leading a conference, keynote speaking, whatever it is, and they have to introduce you. How do they introduce you?
2: You ask a lot of very difficult questions. I appreciate them. They're very good questions. And they're things that I haven't thought about. And so it's a very difficult question. And this is going to sound super cheesy, and this would never happen in real life. But if my son introduced me as daddy when he was like 20 or 25 or whatever it is, you know what I mean? And the reason I say that is because it's just—it's such an endearing term. And I think it just speaks to... The relationship that you can have with your children, and that the love that you can share with them—you know what I mean—and and and I'm saying this because I have a five-year-old and a newborn, and so the term "daddy" to me is still so important and so personal. And so again, I know it's super cheesy, but that's going to be my answer.
0: Mark, the hair on my whole body is standing up. I've got a four and seven-year-old. I would I would just speak to my heart. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my
2: pleasure. Great question.
0: All right, Mark. So for the last hour and twelve minutes, we've been having a conversation about. Your money story and Root Hub has been taking some notes and he has a gift to be able to hear someone's story and reflect it back in song. And I know music is has a part of your life. So it brings me a lot of pleasure to introduce you to Root Hub. Hi. Hey, um, nice to meet you?
2: you. Likewise, man. That story is incredible. Your dad sounds like an awesome guy. Thanks. I really like the fitness and the you know, just yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's my pleasure. And Thanks. it's, you know, it's interesting, like with these songs, I never really know where they're going to go or what they're going to be about. And like, I feel, I definitely feel like from the notes I took like this, because sometimes they're, we're working with individuals who aren't professionals in the field. And this one I'm like, okay, this is about the work and how much it intertwines with what all of us are going through every day. And I really love when art can weave with just the reality of who we are and kind of help us all make sense of it. All right, here we go.
1: Life ported in fractions Part of the song Make up the total story of where we all come from Lessons and small we make and we take to guide us every day Because we find our way we'll Do what we can, we'll Do what we can. Exploration, identity, dance with financial destiny Head toward the island of the possible and probable